Episode 21, The Avalanche. Don't talk, just listen. drew her past the faces of her past, visages grown so large they appeared like planets in the star field. The tide drew her beyond cities, planets, no larger than meteor dust, entire eons of history no greater than a momentary flicker within an unobserved moment. She wished to close her eyes, but Cassandra had a sensation that her eyes were already closed. This space was without end, until it ended. The door before her was plain, unmarked. The knob was round and dull and turned easily. The hallway into which she walked had the appearance of a grungy motel, stains rendered sickly by the fluorescent lights, all a flicker. Yet the smell told the story of a forest deep and dark. Cassandra took a step and realized she was barefoot. Pine needles tickled her toes. Yet when she looked down, beneath her was only an unremarkable carpet. The thought occurred to her that it should be impossible to be two things at once. The thought stopped her cold. She felt a breeze against her back and heard, somewhere, the creak of boughs caught in the breath of the world. She remembered that creak. Not just the general shape of it, but that specific music. Every Saturday, her mother would drive her out to the forest and they would walk for hours in the cool of the canopy shade. These were the only times in Cassandra's early life when she had been allowed to wear her dresses, her shoes, her makeup. These had been the only times when Cassandra was allowed to be Cassandra. One week, there had been reports that a storm was coming and her father had not wished them to go. Cassandra's mother had insisted, leaving the man baffled as to why a walk in the woods could be so important. That Saturday, all the forest had seemed to be alive and in motion and speaking, speaking in a tongue so old that it is known by all mortal beings yet understood 
by none. With hindsight, Cassandra understood that the forest had been trying to warn them. A flash, a bang, a scream. Her next memory was being at the ranger station, a blanket around her shoulders, the uniformed man shouting into a phone. Time moved in fast forward until the moment her father stood before her, his look of concern melting into something else entirely as he parted the blanket and saw that she was still wearing her dress. She continued down the hall, not needing to pause at any door because she knew which one belonged to her. It rose to her as if in dream. The key card was in her hand. The door opened at a touch. The tableau before her was just as she always remembered it. Her on the bed, naked except for the bandages, freshly earned after she finally decided to stop living other people's lie and be Cassandra as she had always been. Her clothes in tatters on the floor, fabric still twined between her father's fingers. Fingers that curled into a fist and closed in towards her face. Him on top of her, jaw clenched, spit flying, eyes empty of all things except that same rage, the oldest language she had ever known. Cassandra looked at herself and looked at him and could not fathom ever having been so afraid. She had faced real monsters since in the city beneath the black sun. And compared to that, an old man's hate seemed a trifling thing, as passing as stardust fading on an invisible tide. She was then suddenly aware of a door behind her that had never been there before. It was plain, unmarked. The knob was round and shone and turned easily. The witch woman sat at her table, candles glowing and supplicant kneeling, head bent. She smiled a gap-toothed grin and said, Come.
Priya Patel could never have explained it. Not even if you asked her direct, which people did. Sure, she was concerned about Cassandra. Who wasn't? Cassandra was a great girl, a big help. It was an awful shame what had happened. But this was the city beneath the black sun. Death was a casual acquaintance here. In cases such as this, where a person disappeared and left only minimal traces behind, were just as common. And at a certain point, you had to make peace with the mystery. Yes, it was agreed. It was a real, awful shame. But what was there to be done? Cassandra had accompanied the Misters Oaks and Mayhew into the sewer. The group had been accosted, and she had been lost. They found her sickle blade, and they found her red hood. But of the woman, there had been no trace. Days had become weeks, had become hopeless months. Yet still, Priya Patel searched. She had other duties, but she ignored them. There were other people she could have helped, but her heart could waste no space. The thing in her, the need of it, she could never have explained it. It was something she had never felt before, yet she felt it with such an intensity that scared her. All those nights cruising through the city in her ambulance, Cassandra in the passenger seat, this something had been growing between them, strengthening with every moment. The walkie-talkie squawked, and she ignored it. The air had been threatening to warm up, but over the last couple days, the cold had tightened like a vice. The sky spat snow. She remembered the last night before the journey to the sewer. All day, Cassandra had been dropping hints about some kind of major discovery. As soon as Priya had clocked out of her shift, the other woman dragged her to a rooftop and revealed her discovery. A very tall bottle of very fine scotch. True cold had only been just beginning to set in. The night air stung the back of their throats while the booze set pleasant fires within their veins. They talked about seemingly everything except the one. That one something sat between them, growing heavier and more distracting. The words had been on Priya Patel's lips, the declaration ready for declaring. But somewhere, someone had screamed, and with a look of deepest regret, Cassandra took up her blade, drew her hood, and was gone. Priya Patel thought she might regret that last frustration until the day she 
the walkie-talkie squawked. Within the sound was her name. She picked it up, said, Yeah? Dr. Andrews was on the other end. It seemed that one of the remoras had called in. Seemed a woman claimed to know something. Something about Cassandra. Cassandra took a seat at the table. It was her seat. Somehow she knew it was her seat. There were three total. One other held the witch woman. One other sat empty. The witch woman spoke. She said, Do not try to understand everything I'm about to say. When you try to recall this meeting, you will keep only impressions. Know only this. The one who must never awaken strains against his prison beneath the red sky. This cannot be stopped. This cannot be stopped. This cannot be stopped. We can only make ready. He has two servants who will hasten this rise. One is a stranger to you, but knows you complete. The other you know too well, but they know not what they do. In time, you will bring a king of shadows and a servant of dreams to this place. And then sun of gold and moon of silver will at last have their war. Believe this. There are horrors ahead. For you, for the city, and all who dwell within and within. Perhaps you prefer to avoid all the trouble. That is what this one opted for. Here, the witch woman nodded to the supplicant. A little girl lost in the forest. Would you like your story passed off to another as well? Cassandra found her voice. It was rough and quiet and was forced through dry lips and sounded as if she had not used it in a very long time. And the voice said the word, No. The witch woman smiled and said, In that case, we will need to prepare you. 
Firstly, there is the matter of your name. You must give it to me. She held up a hand. Not your true name. The false one. The rejected one. Names have tremendous power. And a false name known by an enemy is a dangerous thing. So I ask you now to reach within yourself and drag this fake from out of you. Give the dead thing to me and you will be free of it. At first, Cassandra did not know what the newly silent witch woman wanted of her. How did she give up a name? She thought about the name, about all that it entailed. It was not just a pair of words. Within those words were entire worlds of lies. Within them was a person she had never truly been, yet may have been forced to play for all the entirety of her life. The idea made her feel sick. And then she was sick. It came in a wave phlegm and blood and stomach contents rushing out of her. When it ended, she felt weak, only her hands on the table keeping her aloft. The supplicant moved to the table and began sifting through the mess, apparently uncaring of her bare hands on the contents. She came away with what appeared to be a petrified, deformed insect. Cassandra could not begin to fathom how such a thing had been inside her. As she watched, the seemingly dead thing twitched. The witch woman took the relic and glanced over it. With only a glance, she seared it into ash. There is one other bit of preparation, she said, a piece of information. You will tell all you can, but many will not believe you. After you have proven right, all will believe in you. Cassandra wanted to rise, to run, to tear herself from this room and be anywhere absolutely anywhere else but her arms were bolted to the chair her body locked in here is the news you will spread the witch woman said and she told her as Cassandra protested as she insisted that this could not be that she refused to play whatever sick game this was, as she said it was impossible, impossible. The candlelight grew and intensified until it blotted out supplicant and witch woman and the whole of the house until Cassandra felt she was floating in pure light, soul cleansed and body washed anew. The pain pangs started to settle but when Cassandra looked at her arms, 
She saw bruises and cuts spreading like water across paper. Her ribs cracked as if struck by an invisible boot. She cried out, and there was blood in her exaltation. And then Cassandra fell back into flesh. Remoras was the name the denizens of St. Peter's Hospital gave to those city dwellers that clung to the hospital or resisted joining up proper. Some resisted because they did not trust the collective, others because they refused to assist in the maintenance and work that went into keeping the hospital functional. Still others stayed away because they were born to be alone. The woman in Dr. Andrews' office was one of these. She flexed and unflexed her hands, uncomfortable to be closed in by four walls, to be studied by so many other people. She was wrapped in filth that held herself as a dignitary. She wanted food and some new clothes and pills. Some of the hospital staff seemed bent on bartering, but Priya Patel was having none of that. She marched from the room, gathered up food and clothes, and strode past Davy Chazelle a guard duty and grabbed some little orange bottles that were as currency and life to some. She brought the offering to the ragged woman and dumped the lot out in front of her. There were protests, but Priya Patel did not hear. The messenger picked over the bundle and made as if to complain, as if to haggle, trying to get just a little bit more. But then she saw Priya Patel's eyes and knew exactly what was in her heart. She said, Sewer tribe, and began to gather up her earnings. Priya Patel slammed the sickle blade down, the reverberations silencing all other voices in the room. We already checked with them, she said through clenched teeth. They were the first people we checked with. They knew nothing. The messenger explained that while that might have been the case, circumstances had recently changed. This woman, you see, had a taste for psychotropics, not easily sated in the city beneath the black sun. But a strange fungus that grew on the sewer walls did the trick just fine, and she had arranged a steady supply from one of the sewer tribe's outrunners in exchange for, well, a transaction the polite company dare not speak of. It was during one of these transactions that he mentioned that the tribe had just the other day come across a savage body floating 
on their subterranean tide. Normally, such a find was worth only so much as the weight of its flesh left as an offering to the crocodile god. But two things set this one apart. One, despite the violence afflicted against it, this body clung to life. And two, this was no unloved, uncared for cadaver, a no one who fell through a crack and into the city beneath the black sun's gullet. This was the woman Cassandra, known by all, loved by many, feared by even more. And for the past few months, the singular focus and target of the man McRae. The sewer tribe had, apparently, spent the last several days locked in debate as to what to do with her. In the one category were those who believed they should shelter and heal her. In the other category were them who said their best course of action was to turn her over to the man McRae. The messenger finished the message. Priya Patel listened for a moment longer, and then she was off, the sickle blade in her hand. Where are you going? Dr. Andrews asked. Priya Patel called back, offering a third-party perspective. There was pain and darkness and light, a kind of dark light that stabbed her and stripped her and left her dangling naked in cruel space. There were voices raised, saying words that she knew she knew but could not begin to decipher, broken and scattered as she was. But then, then there was Priya Patel just before her her eyes filling with tears and her hands cupping Cassandra's face. Cassandra tried to raise her own hands, but bindings of pain held them down. The dark light swam across her vision, and from then on, time passed in fragments and space twisted without reason. She would have been petrified down to her soul but always there was a sound of Priya Patel's voice calling her back, back from that darkness, back towards safer shores. Cassandra was three days in danger, and for three days she tormented the staff at St. Peter's with her demands to leave. After three days, she was determined to be no longer in immediate peril and released. She did not say goodbye to Priya Patel, leaving the other woman to wonder if she would even see her again. Priya wondered if things had meant what she thought they had. In fact, when Priya Patel returned to her quarters that night, Cassandra was there, sitting on her bed. Priya took a seat beside her. The legendary fearsome Cassandra looked thin and pale, more scared child than anything else. 
Her body was still covered in bandages, visible beneath her clothes. Not knowing what there was to say, Priya Patel placed her hand on the other woman's head and began to stroke her hair. Cassandra said, It's coming back. What is? Priya Patel replied. The kaiju. There's a lot I don't remember from when I was, wherever I went, but that part is crystal clear. The kaiju is coming back, soon, and so soon, so many people are going to die, Pri, and there's nothing I can do about it. You'll warn people, Priya Patel said. We will warn people. No one's going to believe us. Me. They will, Priya Patel insisted. Because, because people believe in you, like I do. Their eyes met. Cassandra said, I felt alone since my mom died. She was the only one who knew that daddy's little boy was actually a girl, despite it all. She looked away, not wanting to see how the news was received. Cassandra went on. She supported me through everything, even set up a bank account just to help in my transition. But I was so scared, Pri. It was so much easier to live the lie I was given to live. It wasn't until she died that I was ready, ready to be me and not apologize for it. And I'm glad I did it. I am. I'm glad the face in the mirror finally reflects who I've always known I am. But Christ, I still feel so alone. And with everything happening in the city, everything in this whole damn world, it feels like there's an avalanche pounding down all around me. And everything's constantly shifting and falling. And it's all I can do to keep my head above and keep from being crushed. But no matter how long I hold out, I'm all alone against it. Cassandra began to cry. A hand touched her chin and guided her face up until she met Priya's eyes. Priya's other hand went beneath her shirt and came to rest against Cassandra's chest. Her heartbeat was strong and clear beneath the bandages. Priya Patel said, No. No, you are not alone. And kissed her.
Hi everybody, and thank you for another episode of Black Sun Dispatches, part of the Slipunks Podcast Network. My name is Brandon Foley, and I write, produce, and perform the show. I don't know why you're saying that. No, I would just blame that, blame that me being up too late, but I'm not, it's not, uh, it's not late out, I'm just a goofy person. <laughs> Blacks and Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by the Cinepunks Podcast Network. Uh, even if you like this one, please check out Cinepunks, Loud Fast Philly, Hard Business, The Mandate, uh, we have all kinds of really cool stuff, including some really, really cool writing uh, all over the site. And on a recent episode of Cinepunks, uh, Liam talked about how much he didn't like Dark City, so uh, our association will probably be ending soon because you don't talk crap about Dark City. Nah, William Hurt died for our sins. Cinepunks and shows are sponsored by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, which you can hit up at xlvacx.com. Again, it's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at xlvacx.com. If you want to sponsor Cinepunks and all the great content, uh, hit up our Patreon, which is on the website. If you like this show, please rate us on iTunes and help spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Semaphore, however you get the word out. There's some new thing. Varu? Is that the new thing? I don't know. There's too many social networks. Thing. You can find me on Twitter at the true Brennan F, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show. Again, I'm on Twitter at the true Brennan F, and the show is on Black Sun Show. The Black, Sun the Black Sun Dispatches logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers. A huge thank you to her, uh, as always. Uh, the music was Winter by E.L. Heath. And the last song was Join Me on My Avalanche by... Uh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name right now. Holy crap, one second. Uh, it's not Arcade Fire. Uh, who did the score for Prince Avalanche? Uh, uh, I can't forget this. By Explosions in the Sky, that's who did the score for the film Prince Avalanche, which is what that song is from. That was the song right there at the end. Uh, join me on Avalanche. Okay, cool. So Blackstone Dispatches is rapidly approaching our final episode, not our final episode, but the, the season finale for kind of the first movement of the show. So uh, so that's going to be in April, I believe. So we'll be back on March 26th with a brand new episode leading into, like I said, our big season finale event that's going to probably take a little bit of time to play out so hopefully like I said I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode and I hope you'll join us when we come back on March 26th with our next one so like I said uh, hopefully you guys like this one and I'll see you next time bye and I'm sorry that I spoiled Dark City for you but really you should have seen it by now it's like 20 years old okay I'm for real bye